I'll be reading from the book of Ruth, starting in uh, chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man in Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elmelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one wife was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Milan and Chilion also died, so that the women the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I too am old, and I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. She said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you, to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do thus to me, and more as well, if even the death parts me from you. Then Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, and she said no more. Faithful and true are the words of God. You may be seated. Lord, may you bless the meditations of my heart and the words in my mouth. May they be acceptable and pleasing unto you. Amen. So the story of Ruth um, has long been read as a story of deep and profound loyalty, right? Ruth is a short book. There's only four chapters. I think it will take you a grand total of maybe 30 minutes if you're a slow reader to read it. So if it's been a while, go home today and, and open it and read it. It's a great story. But a quick reminder on how the story goes. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there was a famine in the land of Judah, 
And such was their hunger that a family fled from their home in Bethlehem to Moab. And the Moabites and the Israelites were not friends. <laughs> they did not get along very well at all. And if you want to know more about that, I invite you to read the book of Judges. There was good cause for their bad blood. But Elimelech, Ruth, and their two sons settled in Moab all the same. Their two sons married Orpah and Ruth, the Moabite girls next door. But within the first few verses of the book, Elimelech and the sons have died, leaving Naomi and her daughters-in-law on their own. Naomi, bereft with grief and afraid for her own future, decides to send Orpah and Ruth back to their own mothers where they'll be taken care of, right? And Orpah eventually obeys Naomi and goes home, but Ruth seems almost a little angry that Naomi would even suggest such a thing. Now, in the original Hebrew, Ruth's speech here reads more like this. It says, your people, my people. Where you go, I go. Your God, my God. Right? What she's saying is, you are my family. Your God is my God. And I'm more than a little ticked off at you right now for suggesting otherwise. <laughs> so suck it up, buttercup. I'm coming with you. Now, Ruth is under no obligation to stay with Naomi, and we're not given any other details about Ruth's life, so we don't know anything about her motivation other than what the author tells her, tells us about her, in that she loves Naomi and she is loyal to her. Love and loyalty. Man. Now, the rest of the story continues with their return to Bethlehem, where Ruth takes up a uh, job gleaning the fields after the workers, collecting what little grain is left over, so that she and Naomi could have a little bit to eat and maybe some left over to sell. Now, while she's there, she catches the eye of Boaz, our wealthy man in town who owns the fields. And eventually, Naomi convinces Ruth to ask Boaz to marry her, which he does, and they live happily ever after. It's a good ending, right? And we're told in the text that she becomes the great-great-grandmother to King David, which means that she is the great-great-great-great, I don't know how many great-grandmother of Jesus. It's a good story. It's a good, happy ending. And it is a story that is moved by Ruth's unfaltering loyalty to her mother-in-law, Naomi. But it's not just a story about loyalty, and I want you to catch this in the text this morning, it is a story about community and belonging. See, at the beginning of the story, Naomi is driven from her community by famine, right? And she travels to a different land. And then she loses what is left of her family with the death of her husband and her sons, but she is restored when she returns home with Ruth, an outsider, to her community in Bethlehem. Naomi has a strong sense of belonging to her community and Ruth a sense of belonging to Naomi as family. 
This is a story about community. See, I think we often miss this when we read the story because we're Westerners, right? Uh, We tend to think in terms of rugged individualism, striking out on our own, and we're generally comfortable with being islands unto ourselves, right? Reaching out only when we want a little connection or we find ourselves in need. But for the world of Naomi and Ruth, it was all about community and belonging. And I believe that there's a beautiful truth in that world for us, especially as disconnected as we are. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous German theologian known for fighting Nazis and dying in a concentration camp months before he months before it was liberated after he was part of an assassination plot to kill Hitler. Super interesting guy. (laughs) Central to his theology was this idea of community. He believed that to be made in God's image means to be made for each other. This is really interesting, I think. He believed that liberation from our sins was to be freed to be for each other. It's loving our enemies and helping our neighbors. That is what it meant for Bonhoeffer to be freed of sins. Through Christ's liberating power, we are free to love one another. True freedom is in loving our enemies and serving our neighbors. And isn't that a strong sentiment for a man running an underground seminary in the midst of the Holocaust. He understood what it meant for community and belonging to be a deep theological meaning for us as humans. Because when we're disconnected, we do bad and terrible things to each other. But I've been thinking a lot about community lately, and in part because, you know, we... We just wrapped up Job last week, I know, but I had been studying that last chapter of Job for longer than that uh, to prepare for my sermon. And I just can't get the ending of Job out of my mind. Now, y'all might remember how it goes, right? Uh, How Job ends. Once Job forgave his friends for being the absolute worst to him. (laughs) They were total jerks. At his lowest moment, when Job forgives his friends, that is when things turn around. And his community shows up. His family and his friends come, and they break bread in his house, and they give him financial gifts that he can get back up on his feet. And this is how Job is restored. He was restored by community once he participated in restoring that community through his selfless act of forgiveness. Community. So isn't that interesting? And then here we have Ruth. She is an outsider. She's a Moabite among Israelites. She's not just a foreigner. She's the enemy. She's done nothing to deserve this label, mind you, right? The text tells us that she's a kind and good and loyal and righteous person. But the label she has all the same. And it is her kindness and loyalty that bring her into community. 
something we're led to believe Naomi must have first offered both her and Orpah all those years ago in Moab. Ruth restores Naomi to her community, and in so doing, Ruth is restored and then some. Community is life-giving and transformative. Now, there's been a lot of social and scientific research lately on the effects of community and belonging in our health and well-being. So in preparing for this sermon, I found myself sifting through hundreds of academic journals and articles all about the health benefits of community and the ways in which community and belonging are being used in medicine and elder care right now. This, I don't think, should surprise us as disciples of Christ. The one who showed us the way in which to live by gathering a community of disciples around himself and setting out to heal the sick, feed the hungry, and preach good news of God's kingdom come, right? God's community made present in our midst. We should know how important and vital community is. We are created as social beings, designed for community, and yet we currently live in a society experiencing an epidemic of loneliness. Earlier this year, the U.S. Surgeon General put out a lengthy report on what he has considered to be one of the nation's greatest health concerns, loneliness. I'm going to read to you a little bit of what he says in the opening of that report. He said, loneliness is far more than just a bad feeling. It harms both individuals and societal health. It is associated with a greater risk of cardiovascular disease, dementia, stroke, depression, anxiety, and premature death. The mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day and even greater than, the than that associated with obesity and physical inactivity. Whoa. And the harmful consequences of a society that lacks social connection can be felt in our schools, workplaces, and civic organizations where performance, productivity, and engagement are diminished. Loneliness. Loneliness can do all of that. Loyalty to each other is beginning to sound a lot more life-giving now, isn't it? It's literally life-giving. This loyalty to creating and sustaining a healthy community and healthy relationships is vital to us as people. It's how we're made, and it takes work and dedication to maintain it. And some of us are better at connecting than others, right? And we have become increasingly isolated as a society, though. And I suspect, for my part, I suspect that this is a combination of our rugged individualism, our go-it-alone mentality, right? With our polarizing worldviews, we tend to want to otherize anyone who does not think like ourselves and not want to create and forge those connections. And I wonder if we just too frequently give up on each other and on ourselves. 
we're too willing to throw away some relationships because frankly, it's easier than sifting through the mess of human relationships and human connection. And let's be honest, humans, we're a mess, <laughs> right? We are messy beings, but there is so much good and grace to be found in that mess. John Wesley liked to use the phrase social holiness. He believed that there's a holiness found in community and relationships with one another. We need one another. Wesley would say that none of us get to heaven on our own. Our discipleship is refined by each other's discipleship. Our love for God grows by loving one another. There's something about community, right? For Bonhoeffer, a man trying to make sense of the worst of humanity as his nation waged a genocide, perhaps it makes sense that he found Christ's salvation in the shared love for one another across all lines of difference. Only a case for radical community can make sense of the madness of Nazi rule and the Second World War. A lesson perhaps we truly need today. Community, loyalty, isolation, disconnectedness. These are the ideas that we're wrestling with today. What does it mean to be whole, to create spaces for community to thrive, to help heal a world suffering from an epidemic of loneliness? We are the church, dear ones. And such an epidemic should be in our wheelhouse to address, right? This is what we're made for. This is what we're supposed to be truly good at. I believe that we are especially poised to restore community and belonging around us, but this is going to take work. I believe that we are a place where those who feel like outsiders find family and belonging with our radical sense of hospitality and love and community. I believe the church is a place where communities who have been fractured by divisions should find resolution and redemption. And perhaps maybe that sounds like a bit of an idealized hope and fantasy given what the United Methodist Church has just been through. But I think reckless hope is what we find in Christ. So here is the challenge before us. How do we restore community to those around us? Now, I'm not just talking about beefing up our Sunday school programs, although by all means, go all out. We love our Sunday school communities. They are the heart of our church. But I'm talking about looking around us and finding those who are isolated and lonely, disconnected, and bringing them into connection and belonging. See, it begins with us making space for them in our churches and in our lives trying new things like the faith conference that we're hosting next weekend or all the community partnerships that we're forging. It also begins with us restoring relationships in our own lives, reaching out to that friend we know is isolated and lonely. It's smiling genuinely at that cashier at Reesers and actually listening with intention when we ask them how their day is. It's making space on our committees for new people 
and giving them a voice of their own to lead in new and fresh ways with new ideas that maybe make us a little uncomfortable. Good. That's great. That's community. Because here's the thing. People need connection, community, and belonging. Our society is suffering an epidemic of loneliness And we, my dear friends, are on the front lines, called here by the God who created us for community. Ruth teaches us that the path towards wholeness and restored community is loyalty to one another and what Bonhoeffer would call being free for each other, breaking beyond our islands and forging ahead onto the mainland, bringing all God's beloved children into community of belonging built on the enduring love of Jesus Christ. May it be so, and may it be so in us and through us. Holy God, we thank you for creating us for community and giving us connection through the bonds of Jesus Christ and the love forged by the Holy Spirit and your holy name. God, would you empower us Liberate us to be free for each other, to be free to love one another fully and completely across all lines of difference until all this world is caught up in one singular community, that of belonging to you. Make it so, O Lord. Make it so. Amen.